Well, for those that don't know me, uh, my name's Trey, and I am one of the pastors here. And so if this is uh, your first time joining us today, uh, Veritas, I really just welcome, right? Uh, we're really happy that you decided to come out and celebrate Christmas with us today. Um, the chance to celebrate Christmas on a Sunday only comes once every so often, and so it's just like really, really exciting that you're here. Um, right now, we are at the tail end, the last sermon of uh, our series in Advent. And Advent, uh, for those that don't know, is uh, a special time of the year for Christians. It's when we celebrate how God directly entered into human history. Uh, he came in as a human, uh, as part of his great rescue plan from time immemorial all the way back in Genesis to come and rescue all of us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, if that was like a, you know, news to you, so, sorry, spoiler, it's, everything I'm going to talk about is Jesus, so, you know, nothing, nothing uh, new there, all right? And so uh, this Advent, we have uh, preached through uh, a short series, um, as you can see, and uh, the book of Isaiah, right? Somewhat odd choice for those that have never read it, but the book of Isaiah recounts prophecies given to the prophet uh, from God for the kingdom of Judah. And uh, these words were a promise of judgment to the people of Israel if uh, they did not turn away from their sin and idolatry. Uh, judgment, would, God would use the nations, the other kingdoms around uh, Judah and Israel, to uh, destroy them, to put them into exile. Uh, but that's not the only thing God, that's not the only message God gave to Isaiah. He also gave messages of hope. Uh, he gave promises and prophecies of the fulfillment of God's ancient covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These prophecies spoke of a new king, one like David, one called Emmanuel, or God with us. And this new king would fulfill the covenant. He would lead in perfect adherence to all of God's law, and he would restore a unified Israel that would be a blessing to all the nations. So in the past few weeks, uh, Jacob and Ryan have preached on these promises, promises of a king, a son, and a kingdom. And last week especially, Ryan homed in on the fact that these prophecies point directly to Jesus. A son in the line of David, who inaugurated not just an earthly kingdom as some would expect, but a whole new creation, something completely new. And today we'll see how this is the work of Jesus. It's also a comforting uh, message and promise of God's glory made visible to the world. This passage today is an introduction of sorts to the back half of Isaiah, uh, which I will then get to after I get done talking about this. So, you know, I'm glad you're here for me for the next five hours. It's going to be, yeah, everyone except Evan is super unexcited about that. No, just kidding. But uh, this, uh, chapter 40, uh, enters into the back half. And so the first 39 chapters, Isaiah was prophesying to the people of his time. And then all of these messages got sealed up and given to his disciples for later. Because right now in chapter 40, the message is for the people in Babylon, hundreds of years after Isaiah, right? And so just kind of let that sink in. So the fact that we have a message, God's truth for us here today, is amazing in of itself, but these words were also a comfort to the people after the Babylonian exile. So we're going to open 
with God's word to his people. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lamb in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. All right, so there's a lot here to unpack. Um, but today, I'm not going to spend five hours. I'm just going to spend, you know, close to about half an hour, I think. Is, I think I've really distilled it down to the core message. So we're just going to really focus in on what I think God is trying to primarily say to his people, this comfort, that they can be comforted because his glory is coming soon. So today, I'm going to break it down into three general sections, all right? Uh, I'll come up there. We'll have verse 1 and 2, God's comfort, 3 through 8, his glory revealed to all, and then 9 through 11, uh, which will be kind of our application piece, but it's proclaiming the fact that the Lord has come. You know, so before we take this deeper look, though, I do want to just real quick give a, a definition. Um, you know, I I'm like to, I'm an instructor at heart in, in many of the different ways, and so I like to put definitions up front, right? And uh, if you were to look and try and define God's glory in the Bible and just like do a quick word search, you'd find all sorts of different meanings for it, and it'd be kind of hard, right? Because uh, it's used a whole bunch of different ways throughout. I mean, in fact, um, it's used as an adjective, right? It's used as a noun and a verb. God is glorious. Uh, he reveals his own glory, and God is to be glorified, right? We got all three right there. It's good to go, right? And so one of the best definitions that I came across when I was studying up for this, uh, this sermon today is uh, in a book by Christopher Morgan, um, all about the glory of God and Paul. Um, not Paul's glory, it's just the glory of God as Paul describes it. But uh, he himself was like, hey, how do I get a great definition? He has spent a whole chapter trying to define it. And one of the ones that he came across is the one I'm going to share with you today. Um, and that, that is, God's glory is a manifestation of his person, presence, and or works, especially his power, judgment, and salvation. And so this right here is what God is promising to his people. He's going to reveal in a really special way 
a manifestation of his person, presence, and or works than his power, judgment, and salvation. And so I just want to keep you guys to keep that in mind today as we work through these sections. Um, you don't have enough time to write down, but if you want it, you know, I have it here. You know, I'm not going to destroy my notes or anything after we're done. Um, so with that, let's look a bit deeper at verse 1 and 2. All right, so I'm going to pop those back up there on the board, right? Verses 1 and 2. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, and that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. These words are meant to be an immediate balm, an immediate comfort to the people in exile. This is spoken tenderly to a people whose own sin took them out of the land promised to their forefathers and put them in exile under foreign kings. But it's also comforting because it's a reminder of God's character. The way in which in the Bible, God's character is most often described in so many different verses is that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's mentioned so many times throughout the Old Testament and the New in many different ways. God here is announcing mercy and an end to the punishment that he dictated. This is mercy because Israel was supposed to be God's direct representative. Israel's talked about as his son in the Old Testament. It's supposed to be that Israel is holy like God is holy and displays God's glory throughout the world. But if you've read any of the Old Testament and been with us, especially through Genesis, or if you've ever just, you know, maybe thumbed your way through it, you can see that Israel time and time again turns away from God. Time and time again worships other gods. They even split over it. They become one northern kingdom, Israel, and one southern kingdom, Judah, right? God could have started over. He could have just been like, Oop, nope, I'm going to go pick, pick these people over here and just start over. They'll be my chosen people, and uh, it'll be great. But that's not what he did. Because God is true to his nature. His covenant promise was to work through the descendants of Abraham. And that no matter what, he would keep his side of the bargain. He would keep his side of the covenant no matter what humans did. So here, God is very gently reminding people who he is. A loving and a just God, but also one that does not settle for secondary worship. These next two, or this next section is going to be verses uh, 3 through 8. And in some of your Bibles, or maybe in some things you might have read, they deal with them maybe as two different pieces, but they're interconnected, right? Um, both begin with proclamations and both describe actions that God will take, uh, that the people can take comfort in. And so I'm going to look at each one separately. We're going to do 3 through 5 and then 8 or six through eight after that. And then I will connect them to the both to see how they connect to this overall arc of God's redemptive plan. So I'm going to throw uh, three through five up there again. I'm going to read it. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up 
and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So now we're given God's intention, all right? The comfort has happened. Now God's telling us, hey, this is what's about to happen. This is what I'm going to do. The people are comforted because the Lord their God is on the move. He is coming to reveal himself, finally, in a very special way. But don't mistake verses 3 through 4 as a command for the people in exile to start go building I-95 from Babylon back down to Jerusalem because that's not what's happening here. That's not what's being communicated. They're not meant to make a brick-and-mortar road. Uh, God makes his own way, right? He cannot be uh, hindered by physical things, and he's not asking his people to make a physical road. So, if that's true, there must be something more at work. And just like in last week's sermon, this is a message not just for the people in exile, but also for all time. So, whatever's at work here is for all of us. All right? And so if you were to flip in your Bibles over to the uh, much-referenced book of Malachi, um, then in chapters 3 and 4, there's a couple of verses that I think will help us out. And I'm going to throw those on the board uh, since I don't hear everyone immediately flipping over. Right? Uh, so Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, we got a messenger coming. This is going to be great. Behold, in, verses, in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land the decree of utter destruction. So, uh, much of, of Malachi, especially chapters 3 and 4, are filled with uh, promises of uh, judgment, you know, fire and brimstone stuff, uh, for the wicked, but it's also full of words of healing for the faithful, for those that trust in the Lord. This trust isn't self-started, though. It is God who guides his people out of the wilderness. And this time... What he's saying is that he's going to send someone who is like Elijah the prophet, a messenger that would call people to repentance for sin and to turn away from their sin and idolatry and their hearts back to the Lord. So it's through Elijah 2.0 that God will begin to lead humans out of wilderness so that he can show his glory. Right? So we are assured of these things. Because these words are spoken like a kingly proclamation from the very mouth of God. And so I'm going to speak a little bit more about why that's important and who this Elijah guy is. But just to recap before I hit into the next section, at this point in time, we can take comfort, right? Because God's about to move. He's going to make his own way by sending someone who is like Elijah to call the people to repentance and faith. Then after this, the eternal creator God will manifest in a really special way that shows his glory to everyone that's alive. And we can trust this because of kingly proclamation straight from the mouth of God. All right, so this next section is going to show us why 
that kingly proclamation is a little bit special. All right? So, verses 6 through 8, a voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stand forever. So again, we have a proclamation, a command, cry, and then uh, the response of what shall I cry? And right after that, we have a, a wonderful summary of Old Testament biblical wisdom literature, right? Here we see the impermanence of all things on earth in comparison to God. Creation fades. God is eternal, all right? We also have a wonderful picture of the Trinity. Uh, throughout this scripture, you would notice that uh, either the word Lord is in all caps or God is in all caps, and that's typically translated from Yahweh, you know, God the Father, as we'd like to say. Here we have the breath of God, or Ruach, one of the ways in which the Bible describes the Holy Spirit. So we have two persons of the Trinity here working already in this sermon, in this scripture, right? The Holy Spirit is shown to have dominion over nature, right? Spirit gives life, as we saw all the way back in Genesis, whenever the Spirit moved over the faces of the deep. And we see right here that the Spirit takes life. What God gives, He also takes away. There's nothing outside of God's control here. Only one thing is capable of forever, and that is the eternal Word. I'll speak more about this eternal Word, but let's recap before I do. All right, so now we have uh, the people of God have been promised one who's like Elijah to call on us in repentance and faith. God will reveal his glory to all life, and we've been told that we can trust in this promise because this proclamation from the king is not just a regular proclamation, it is an eternal word. This section of scripture is really important for God's redemptive story. In fact, it is referenced in every single one of the four Gospels. You see, many hundreds of years later, there's going to be a man named John. He uh, wore some real funky clothes, and he preached out in the desert and ate locusts and stuff. He was named John the Baptist, and he preached in an area close to the Jordan River. He was making such a fuss and such an impact that all of the religious leaders came out of Jerusalem, and they asked John, hey man, like, What's going on? Who are you? are? Are you the dude? Are you the guy? What they meant by that is, are you claiming to be the Messiah? And John's response was instead to reference this scripture. You see, he associates his preaching with God preparing his own way. He associates his preaching with God turning the hearts of those that hear it away from sin and back to faith. There's more, though, right? There's more to this. In the gospel according to John, we see something, right? God reveals one of the most important connections to God's plan. Remember, God's promise for glory would be revealed, and we could trust it because it's a word that came from the very mouth of God. It proceeded from the very mouth of God. And God's word is eternal. So if you return to John chapter 1, 
John tells us a little something about that eternal word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Go down a little bit to verse 14, and we see that, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, the word, the promise, the very promise of God has been personified. God's glory made flesh. How is it going to be revealed to us? John the Baptist is out there preaching repentance and the coming of the glorious one. He's saying, like, this dude is so awesome, I can't even untie his shoes. I'm not even going to be able to take his sandals from here to over there. This guy is great. And everyone else is like, okay, John, whatever, man. Uh, Just dip me in the water and let's get about our business. But that eternal word is why we're here today. Advent is the celebration of the word of the Lord, begotten in eternity, who entered into human history to do what no one else could do. That glorious one is Jesus. In all four of the Gospels, the very next thing that happens after John has his little tete-a-tete with the religious leaders is that Jesus comes along and John does what he was sent to do. He identifies Jesus as the lamb who will be slain, the one who will die for all of us. And then even after that, when he baptizes Jesus, all three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit gather in one place. God the Father addresses and says, this is my Son within whom I am well pleased. God the Spirit descends and anoints Jesus right as he enters into the main portion of his ministry for the next three years. So, today, the application piece, right, is just the tail end of this verse. It's, it's really great. Like, I don't have to work. It's like built right into it, right? So, verses 9 through 11, our response, the response of everyone was this. Jesus is revealed, the glory of God is revealed, so go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, behold the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Verse 9 is the proper response that God's people are to have to the revelation of the promised one, Jesus, the eternal word, who's been revealed as king, right? Unfortunately, back then, just as now, that is uh, pretty much not what happens most of the time. Matter of fact, it's like the exact opposite of what usually happens. You say, hey, Jesus is God, and most people say, I don't think so. I'm going to go the other direction. And John chapter 1, verses 11 and 13 show us what people back then had to say about that. He came into his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who did believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. They were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus, 
God himself came as the promised king. All of God's glory made manifest in the most unexpected of ways. In Philippians 2, Paul expertly outlines how incredible this is, that the incarnation of God, the Son, was, in fact, Jesus. And he was, when he was born, not into any palace, but to a virgin, a human in the line of David, who would humble himself and be obedient in every way to the law, not because it was necessary for him, but because it was necessary for us. He was taking our place. He was humbling himself so that he could fulfill our side of the covenant. No one was expecting this. They wanted God's might, or at least their petty understanding of God's might. You see, they wanted Jesus to be like a new David, right? In the martial sense. They wanted a general to come in, march into Jerusalem, leading a heavenly host, kick down the door, kick out Rome, conquer empires and kingdoms, and reestablish Jerusalem, a unified Israel, rebuild the Temple of Solomon, and just, you know, have a big old feast and be like, yeah, we're in charge now. That is what they wanted. But what they got was drastically different. The title of this sermon, after all, is The Promise of God's Glory. But I put a little bit of a personal subtext on it. And that subtext is that we also have the unexpected expression of God's might. You see, in the Bible, all themes, threads, and prophecies, everything, it all points to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's the nexus point, denouement, it's everything. That's where it all leads, right? In the latter part of Isaiah, if we were to get that in a different series, like a subsequent series, if we were to go into chapters 50 and 52 and 53, we would see another person. We'd see another in, you know, character that's introduced. Just like the king was introduced in the first part of Isaiah, we would get someone called the servant. The servant is a figure who's endowed by the Spirit in a special way. A servant who, just like that promised king from the early parts of Isaiah, would announce the good news and bring salvation to his people. This servant however, would be beaten and rejected. This foretells the response that Jesus received. For his entire ministry, Jesus traveled from place to place, meeting sinners deep in their distress. Jesus showed the might of God when he repaired the damage of the fall. He healed the sick, the blind, the deaf, resurrected the dead, he expelled demons, he replaced and repaired that which we have done through our sin. Forgave sins, things that only God can do, no man can do. He taught his disciples to love God and to love others more than themselves, showing them the very character of God's kingdom. He transformed the people around him from the heart, ways that they couldn't transform themselves. And then finally, Jesus did enter Jerusalem. They didn't do it at the front of an army. He did it on the back of a donkey. He'd be rejected there, tried unjustly, and beaten before being condemned to die. But here it is. This is the glory. Here he did conquer an empire. Here he did conquer kingdoms. Not with silly human weapons, 
but by purposefully dying on a cross. Not as a criminal, but as a perfect sacrifice for all of us. You see, when Jesus did that, whenever he rose from the dead three days later, he put all earthly kingdoms to shame. He broke their power of life and death over us, and he defeated death for all time. The promised king, the suffering servant, Emmanuel, all of them, Jesus. He came to earth and he lived that perfect life in line with God's law. And then as the promised priest king, he offered up himself as a perfect sacrifice to atone for our sin. But God didn't stop there, right? The Holy Spirit then bound all of us that believe in Jesus to his life and his death so that our sin would be put onto him and that when he rose again, we would rise again with him, his life, now our life. We'd be adopted, not just subjects of God's new kingdom, but adopted family members, so that when God looks at us, he sees his son. It's through this new family that God continues to bless the nations now. Just like Ryan talked about last week, the new kingdom is inaugurated already. God is blessing the nations through his followers now. He is expanding his kingdom now, spreading the good news. Every year we celebrate Christmas by the giving of gifts. If you're like me, then you know that uh, some of the best gifts are the ones you don't expect. Because an unexpected gift is one that shows a really unique expression of love. Now, my analogy isn't exactly perfect because Jesus' gift is perfect, right? Anything that I give you that you're not expecting is probably super not perfect. Uh, I'm probably giving you something that's the exact opposite of what you want. But still, you understand, you relate to the analogy, right? People were not expecting the form that the Messiah took or how he would accomplish his great work. And despite all the prophecy that leads to him, no one really grasps the fact that no normal man could fulfill all of the covenant promises. No normal king can rule with all of God's glory. No normal servant or priest can offer a sacrifice that completely atones. These are all actions that can only be accomplished by God. And so, surprise, that's what he did. God revealed all of his glory by doing what no human could ever do. He came incarnate as a person, fully God, fully man. And he fulfilled both sides of the covenant. No human can do this, only God, and this is his glory the manifestation of his person, presence, and our work, especially his power, judgment, and salvation. God does what he promises, just often in ways that we don't understand and completely explodes our expectations. So as we go out from today, from here, rejoin our families or your Waffle House, as Jacob pointed out, the application is simple. We are to do what no one else did way back when, we're to do what verse 9 tells us to do. We're to proclaim the glorious work of Jesus. Tell it to your families, to your children, to your friends. Maybe, most importantly, tell it to yourself. Proclaim the one thing that is truly worthy of your belief. Jesus' eternal promise that he has paid for your sin. He atoned for it. He took it, took all of it up there on the cross. And then... When he rose again, 
For those that believe in him, he offers life. You would be adopted into God's family, part of that kingdom to come. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this word of comfort, this good news today, that you have done all of the work, that you have done everything that needs to be done. You have made your own way. We thank you so much for what this season means, that your life, death, and resurrection has defeated death for all time, and that you continue to bless and work through your people. I ask that you do that here today, that you continue to work and bless through those that call you Lord, King, Father. Thank you so much. In name I pray. Amen.